to the March 2009 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal. This month, we are pleased to publish four editorials, seven original research papers, a special article, a case report, a teaching case of the month, and six book reviews. Sarah, tell us more about the papers in this month's issue. Effectiveness and safety of hypertonic saline inhalation combined with exercise training in patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a randomized trial, is by Valdo Ramos and Atala from Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial conducted at an outpatient clinic. 68 subjects with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease were randomized to inhale either 3% hypertonic saline or normal saline before each exercise session in an 8-week exercise program with 3 sessions per week. After the 8-week exercise program, both groups' mean 6-minute walk distance increased significantly. Normal saline improved 6-minute walk distance more than did hypertonic saline. Dyspnea score improved in the hypertonic saline group and the normal saline group. Quality of life also improved significantly except for the physical functioning and social aspect domains in the hypertonic saline group. Adverse effects such as cough or bronchospasm occurred in four patients in the hypertonic saline group. The authors concluded that the improvement in the six-minute walk distance was greater with normal saline than with hypertonic saline, and hypertonic saline was associated with adverse effects. Moreover, it is unclear whether the only predictor of improved functional exercise capacity was exercise training. Effects of body position on resting lung volume in overweight and mildly to moderately obese subjects is by Benedict et al. from Bryan, Texas and Houston, Texas. The authors investigated the hypothesis that the 30-degree Fowler's position, compared to the supine and sitting positions, would increase the functional residual capacity and decrease the ratio of closing capacity to functional residual capacity in healthy subjects with body mass index in the 25 to 39.9 kilogram per meter squared. They also studied whether body fat distribution measured via waist circumference and waist to hip ratio influenced the lung volume differences. 32 subjects were enrolled. The 30-degree Fowler's position did not increase functional residual capacity compared to the supine position. The ratio of closing capacity to functional residual capacity was greater than 1 in 5 of 7 subjects while sitting and in all 7 subjects while supine or in the 30-degree Fowler's position. The waist-to-hip ratio was correlated with closing capacity in all three positions and correlated with the ratio of closing capacity to functional residual capacity in the supine position. The authors concluded that the 30-degree Fowler's position did not increase functional residual capacity in healthy, overweight, to moderately obese subjects. 
Because that body mass index range represents almost 67% of Americans, clinicians may need to modify current practice when the clinical goal is to improve resting lung volume in a sedentary patient. Next is the paper, High Frequency Chest Wall Compression During the 48 Hours Following Thoracic Surgery by Allen et al. from the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. They studied the feasibility of high-frequency chest wall compression in the two post-operative days after thoracic surgery. 25 consecutive adult patients who underwent a variety of thoracic surgeries received at least one high-frequency chest wall compression treatment in the first two post-operative days, along with routine post-operative care. High-frequency chest wall compression was applied with the vest at 12 Hz for 10 minutes. Routine hemodynamic and pulse oximetry data were collected before, during, and after high-frequency chest wall compression. Also collective were qualitative data on patient tolerance and preference for high-frequency chest wall compression versus percussive chest physiotherapy. No major adverse events were encountered. Hemodynamic and pulse oximetry values remained stable before, during and after high-frequency chest wall compression. 84% of the subjects reported little or no discomfort during therapy, and the subjects who expressed a preference preferred high-frequency chest wall compression to conventional chest physiotherapy by more than 2 to 1. The authors concluded that high-frequency chest wall compression is a safe, well-tolerated adjunct after thoracic surgery. The observation of hemodynamic stability is especially important considering that the patients were studied in the early post-operative period during epidural analgesia. A randomized multi-arm repeated measures prospective study of several modalities of portable oxygen delivery during assessment of functional exercise capacity is by Strickland et al. from the University of Missouri. They tested four ambulatory oxygen systems and the compressed oxygen cylinder system in 39 subjects with stage 4 chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Each subject performed four six-minute walk tests, one test with each oxygen system. They measured oxygen saturation, heart rate, and modified Borg dyspnea score, and surveyed the subject's preferences about the oxygen systems. They also studied whether the two systems that provide gas with a lower oxygen concentration from a home concentrator or portable concentrator showed any evidence of not providing adequate oxygenation. Between the four systems, there were no statistically significant differences between the pre-walk versus post-walk oxygen saturation differences or in total duration of desaturation events. With each system, the pre-walk versus post-walk oxygen saturation difference was between minus 8% and minus 6%. The authors conclude that, between these four ambulatory oxygen systems, there were no significant differences in oxygen saturation, 
walk time, or walk distance, and there was no evidence of inadequate oxygenation with the two systems that provide a lower oxygen concentration. Alan et al. from the Lahnstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany present Airway Humidification During High-Frequency Percussive Ventilation. They studied five humidifiers during high-frequency percussive ventilation with the lung model at bias gas flows of 10 liters per minute, 30 liters per minute, and 50 liters per minute. They compared the results to those from a comparative ventilator humidifier setup and to the minimum heat and humidity values recommended by the American Association for Respiratory Care at both regular room temperature and heated ambient temperatures. Of the seven high-frequency percussive ventilation humidifier combinations, the MR850 at a bias flow of 50 liters per minute and the Contratherm high flow with a high-frequency percussive ventilation nebulizer provided a carinal temperature equivalent to the comparator setup at room temperature. Only one high-frequency percussive ventilation humidifier combination, the Contratherm high flow with modified programming at bias flows of 30 liters per minute and 50 liters per minute, provided a higher carinal temperature. At high ambient temperature, all of the humidifier setups delivered lower carinal temperatures than the comparator setup. Only two setups, the Contratherm with modified programming at a bias flow of 50 liters per minute and the Contratherm high flow with high frequency percussive ventilation nebulizer, provided carinal humidification equivalent to the comparator setup without regard to ambient temperature. The Contratherm with modified programming and the Contratherm in conjunction with the high-frequency percussive ventilation nebulizer gave the most consistent humidification. The authors concluded that the distinctive gas flow mechanism used during high-frequency percussive ventilation may impair the efficacy of a heated humidifier. So, all humidification systems should undergo dedicated testing with high-frequency percussive ventilation prior to clinical use. Limits of effective cough augmentation techniques in patients with neuromuscular disease is presented by Toussaint et al. from Belgium. They studied cough augmentation therapies in 179 clinically stable patients with various neuromuscular diseases. They measured vital capacity, maximum expiratory pressure, and peak cough flow with and without three cough augmentation techniques, manually assisted cough, breath stacking, and breath stacking in combination with manually assisted cough. The lower limit of effective assisted cough with manually assisted cough, breath stacking, and breath stacking plus manually assisted cough was best predicted by vital capacity. With each of the cough augmentation techniques, the benefits decreased linearly with increasing maximal expiratory pressure and vital capacity. Compared to manually assisted cough and breath stacking alone, breath stacking plus manually assisted cough best improved unassisted peak cough flow. 
The authors concluded that, in clinically stable patients with neuromuscular diseases, the effectiveness of cough augmentation techniques can be predicted with measurements of maximum respiratory capacity. Patients with a vital capacity greater than 340 milliliters and maximal expiratory pressure less than 34 centimeters of water optimally benefit from the combination of breath stacking plus manually assisted cough to improve peak cough flow to greater than 180 liters per minute. et al. from the University of Washington and University of Pennsylvania present Physiologic Impact of Closed System Endotracheal Suctioning in Spontaneously Breathing Patients Receiving Mechanical Ventilation. They conducted a prospective cohort study in a university hospital's medical intensive care unit. All spontaneously breathing, mechanically ventilated patients were screened for enrollment at the initiation of weaning from mechanical ventilation. Patients underwent standardized closed system endotracheal suctioning. 29 patients were enrolled after a median of 5 ventilator days, and 25 patients were spontaneously breathing on pressure support ventilation when suctioned. The median time to recovery after suctioning was greater than 5 minutes for minute volume, tidal volume, respiratory rate, and ratio of respiratory rate to tidal volume, heart rate, mean arterial pressure, and oxygen saturation increased after suctioning, but the increases were not clinically important. The authors concluded that post-suctioning changes in the measured variables persisted longer in these spontaneously breathing patients weaning from mechanical ventilation than in patients who are sedated and paralyzed. Casmeric et al., representing the American Association for Respiratory Care, present Creating a Vision for Respiratory Care in 2015 and Beyond. The respiratory therapist of today barely resembles the clinicians of 60 years ago, and the future role of the respiratory therapist is clearly open to debate. Medicine is continually changing, with new approaches to disease management emerging almost daily. Third-party payers are challenging payment for iatrogenic injury, manpower issues are affecting all disciplines in medicine, and the non-physician and physician workforce is aging. These factors bring into question what the respiratory care profession will look like in the year 2015. To address this issue, the American Association for Respiratory Care established a task force to envision the respiratory therapist of the future. The goal is to identify potential new roles and responsibilities of respiratory therapists in 2015 and beyond, and to suggest the elements of education, training, and competency documentation needed to assure safe and effective execution of those roles and responsibilities. The Case Report Pulmonary embolectomy, should it be offered earlier rather than later, is by Lee and Dewan from Crichton University Medical Center. 
Deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism are associated with approximately 250,000 hospitalizations each year. Nearly 70% of patients who die of a pulmonary embolism do so within the first hour after onset of symptoms, so prompt and appropriate treatment is needed. Pulmonary embolectomy is a viable alternative for massive and submassive pulmonary embolism. The authors report three cases of successful pulmonary embolectomy. Inhalation of hypertonic saline aerosol is commonly used for sputum induction. More recently, it has been used therapeutically for airway clearance in patients with cystic fibrosis. This has led to speculation about the potential benefit in patients with pulmonary disorders such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It is with this background that the paper by Valteramis and Atula is important. This double-blind randomized controlled trial of outpatients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease reported no benefit for hypertonic saline solution compared with normal saline solution. Moreover, adverse effects such as cough or bronchospasm occurred in 12% of patients in the hypertonic saline group. As stated in the accompanying editorial by Rubin, this study points out the importance of exercise in the care of patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Furthermore, hypertonic saline inhalation may decrease the benefits of exercise in this patient population. Obesity is a public health problem and it is increasingly impacting the care of these patients when they are hospitalized. As pointed out in the editorial by Gentile, specialized equipment and consideration of altered anatomy and physiology are required for transportation, diagnostic testing, physical examination, and medication dosing of obese patients. Benedict et al. evaluated the effects of body position on resting lung volume in overweight and mildly to moderately obese subjects. They found that the 30% Fowler's position did not increase functional residual capacity in healthy overweight to moderately obese subjects. This suggests that this historical principle of pulmonary physiology may not apply to the body mass index range of almost 67% of Americans. Clinicians may need to modify current practice when the clinical goal is to improve resting lung volume in a sedentary patient. As Gentile suggests in his editorial, further work is needed to identify the optimal position for patients with obesity. High-frequency chest wall compression is an airway clearance technique that is used increasingly in hospitalized patients. Allen et al. evaluated this therapy during the 48 hours following thoracic surgery. They used the vest at 12 hertz for 10 minutes and compared this to percussive chest physiotherapy. No major adverse events were encountered and 84% of the subjects reported little or no discomfort during therapy. High-frequency chest wall compression was favored over conventional chest physiotherapy by more than 2 to 1. As pointed out in the editorial by Wheeler, this study does not address the clinical efficacy of high-frequency chest wall compression in this patient population. Wheeler recommends an N of 1 construct as an evidence-based patient-centered approach to determine whether this or another airway clearance therapy is appropriate for an individual patient. High-level evidence supports the use of supplemental oxygen in the care of hypoxemic patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. 
Newer systems for long-term oxygen therapy are designed to provide a longer operating time and allow greater ambulation. Strickland et al. conducted a randomized prospective study of portable oxygen delivery systems during exercise. They found that there were no significant differences between these four ambulatory oxygen systems. As pointed out by McCoy and Carlin in an accompanying editorial, product performance variability with home portable oxygen systems may impact patient performance outcomes. Clinical research is needed to develop an evidence-based foundation for long-term oxygen therapy in ambulatory patients. This is necessary to ensure that patients are appropriately treated in the most efficient and cost-effective manner. Delivery of adequate humidification is a concern when high-frequency percussive ventilation is used. Allen et al. evaluated five humidifiers during high-frequency percussive ventilation with a lung model. They found that the distinctive gas flow mechanism used during high-frequency percussive ventilation may impair the efficacy of a heated humidifier. They further recommend that all humidification systems should undergo dedicated testing with high-frequency percussive ventilation prior to clinical use. Patients with neuromuscular disease typically have cough impairment. Toussaint et al. studied cough augmentation therapies in stable patients with various neuromuscular diseases. Compared to manually assisted cough and breast stacking alone, breast stacking plus manually assisted cough most improved on assisted peak cough flow. In stable patients with neuromuscular diseases, the effectiveness of cough augmentation techniques can be predicted with measurements of maximal respiratory capacity. Patients with a vital capacity greater than 340 milliliters and maximal expiratory pressure less than 34 centimeters of water optimally benefit from the combination of breast stacking plus manually assisted cough to improve peak cough flow to greater than 180 milliliters per minute. Seymour et al. evaluated closed system endotracheal suctioning in spontaneously breathing patients receiving mechanical ventilation. They found that post-suctioning changes in the variables they measured persisted longer in these spontaneously breathing patients weaning from mechanical ventilation than in patients who are sedated and paralyzed. Although the clinical importance of these findings is unclear, this is something that should be appreciated by clinicians when closed suctioning is used. The future role of the respiratory therapist is open to debate. To address this issue, the American Association for Respiratory Care established a task force to envision the respiratory therapist of the future. The goal is to identify potential new roles and responsibilities of respiratory therapists in 2015 and beyond, and to suggest the elements of education, training, and competency documentation needed to assure safe and effective execution of those roles and responsibilities. The initial findings of this task force are presented by Kesmeric et al. in this issue of the journal. This month's case report deals with pulmonary embolectomy and questions whether the procedure should be offered earlier rather than later. This is an important question because deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism are associated with approximately 250,000 hospitalizations each year. Moreover, nearly 70% of patients who die with pulmonary embolism do so within the first hour after onset of symptoms. Leon Dewan report three cases of massive to submassive pulmonary embolism with successful pulmonary embolectomy. 
The teaching case of the month by Ninabar et al. is a case of severe hypoxemia in liver cirrhosis. This case reminds us that severe hypoxemia can occur without symptoms in patients with liver cirrhosis. Hypoxemic patients with liver disease should be screened for hepatopulmonary syndrome because of the risk of mortality in pre-transplant patients. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.